Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, joined today by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in San Diego, who after a few weeks away has made it back to the microphone. Rob, nice to have you back. Uh, so good to be back. It's so nice to be back in Southern California, uh, where my internet works and it's everything seems to be working back in the home office. So very pleased to be around and ready to, uh, to talk weed and, uh, and uh, the Grateful Dead. Wonderful. We have a great show today, August 22nd, 1993 from Autzen Stadium. Uh, we call that, you know, more recent dead. A year maybe when uh, the dead weren't at their finest, but it, uh, occasionally shown through, and this is certainly one of them. Dan, why don't you kick us off with our opening uh, musical clip here, and we'll just let everybody listen to it, and we'll talk about it afterwards. I'm going to let you talk about that one. That's great stuff. What do you got for us? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the reason I picked the uh, the 82293 from Austin, as you said, you know, not necessarily known as the Grateful Dead's best year, but there was something about this night. There was something about that venue. And, um, you know, one of the cool things about this one, the reason I picked the Slipknot to kick, kick us off, is it was really the first time that uh, Garcia was playing on a new guitar that affectionately is known as Lightning Bolt, which is the first guitar that he'd been playing for probably the last, you know, previous 15 years he'd been on Doug Irwin's guitars he'd been on Wolf and Tiger and Rosebud but uh but he met this uh he met this guy named uh Stephen Kripe at a show I want to say in Florida a few years before and Kripe was not a guitar maker but uh decided that he wanted to make Garcia a guitar he was a great woodworker and uh decided to to have a go at it and uh created something that uh, he basically watched the, the, the movie um, so far over and over and over again to see kind of if he could figure out what the weight of the guitar was and what the shape of the guitar was that, you know, Garcia liked so much that Irwin did and tried to recreate something that he would like and then picked out woods, you know, that were like Brazilian woods, so it had the rainforest sort of um, connotation to it and really cool inlays and really, really nice, um, you know, body. But this is a guy that I'd never really tried before, and you know Garcia got it and was so impressed. That I think his quote was, "This is the guitar I've been waiting my whole life for." But the question was, did it, could it play? You know, it was beautiful. But um, when he first got the guitar, he played it one night and then sent it back to be completely revamped for um, for a period of time. And the first night that he got it back after the revamping was for eight twenty two ninety three. So this is really the one where you know we got to see what you know this new guitar could do. And the Slipknot I picked because it's just. It, it gives a really good sense of, of the sound of Kripe's new guitar, uh, of Garcia's new guitar. And, uh, you know, if you listen to it, it's got sort of a tinny higher end to it. It's got a, a much more of a, um, a different sort of twang. A lot of people say it's more of an acoustic sound than, you know, what you were getting out of Irwin's guitars. But Garcia obviously loved to play. He didn't play anything else for about the next year and a half after this night. So, you know, figured I'd kick it off with that. And, you know, what, what do you know about Stephen Kripe? Have you ever done any of the uh, reading up on, on who he was or what he did? I I can't tell you that I know a whole lot. I, I looked into him a little bit for today's show, but here's the thing about all of it that just amazes the hell out of me. Being a woodworker has nothing to do with making a guitar. I love the fact that this guy was ballsy enough to just say, I can make a guitar. And and what I saw, and what you sent over, was he, it's like he basically he watched some videos. He you know there, there was no YouTube back then, right, for him to go to, so he had to make do with whatever information he could find. And, you know, and, and basically just doing it that way uh you know he went ahead and, and, he, and he did it uh, the quote was uh you know the, about the guesswork that he had to make to you know to get it right and this guy got it right and i think that that's just so astounding um you know that someone who's who is obviously an artisan and, and and had great skills uh was able to take those skills and translate them into something i i, I this is just my thought but i would have to say manufacturing you know an instrument that's made out of wood and where the shape of the instrument is so crucial and the sound that the instrument makes for somebody with no musical experience to be able to step in and, and knock the socks off of Jerry Garcia uh, is a great story and um, 
you know, that to me, that's just very cool that, uh, you know, he, he put together. And look, if Garcia says that's all I'm going to play and he plays it so exclusively for a year and a half, you're never going to get a better endorsement than that. Yeah, I agree. And the, the really cool thing is that the second he started playing this, he ordered another guitar pretty much on the spot, which uh, Kripe actually made for him, which um, became known as Top Hat, which Garcia never played on stage, but he actually played at home all the time. So, you know, that was the next one that, um, you know, that was expected to kind of be introduced to, uh, to the audience. But there's one after that. He actually Craig produced four guitars for, uh, for Garcia. And the next one is called, um, uh, there's one called Saturn, and there was one called, oh, I can't remember the other one, but the Eagle, I think. And that's the one that looked a little bit different than an Irwin guitar. But by all accounts, was the next one that, you know, Jerry was planning on bringing to the stage as like his main guitar, which we never actually got to see you know, him play. So it's one of those things that, you know, someone obviously has bought them out of auction now. I'm not sure who owns each of these guitars. I, I know that, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame did a, uh, an exhibit with some of Kripe's guitars along with Doug Irwin's guitars. But, you know, someone, someone's got that out there and has essentially the, the, the tone that was created specifically for, you know, Garcia. And if you look at the, the, the work that's done in these things, like anyone that's out there in the audience listening, just Google Stephen Kripe Garcia and take a look at what he was producing. And these things are some of the most beautiful guitars I've ever seen. And I would have loved to have gotten to hear some of these played on stage because every single one that you know Jerry had between Wolf, Tiger, Rosebud, Lightning Bolt, Top Hat, etc., they all had different sounds, different tones. And um, I was a huge fan of, uh, of Lightning Bolt. A lot of people weren't. A lot of people thought it you know, was, was too tinny. But there was um, there's reasons I love this guitar, and it you know allowed. There's places on the uh, on the fretboard that that Garcia is playing that he never played on. Let's say Tiger, which is um, you know anytime you can get someone to sort of step out of their comfort zone and to go into new areas, uh, I thought it was really cool. But I thought that Slipknot you know does a really nice job of of, of kind of showing off the range. It, yeah, it does, and it's such a fun tune. You know, I mean as as a. St- it exists as a bridge number, right? I mean, that's, it, it's, it's, it's a bridge number within which they can improvise and, and play around for a few minutes, but it, it's, it's just basically to take us from help on the way to Franklin's Tower. And, it, you know, it, it, right, not unlike I Am Hydrogen for Fish, it just, it, it, it is that carrier tune that takes you over. And, I, and too many times I just take it for granted, right? There's a really good help on the way. They get caught up in that really long jam that becomes... Uh, Slipknot and eventually makes its way into Franklin's and to me the Slipknot is, is, is a lot of fun I enjoy it but I, I just don't have enough of a musical ear you know to be able to necessarily follow their patterns and one of the things that Rob Cords from Dark Star Orchestra pointed out when he was on the show a month or two ago and we talked about how much rehearsal they have to do before they go out on the road and he said whenever he goes out on the road before he goes out one of the tunes that he spends a lot of time rehearsing is Slipknot because over the years, the way the dead played it changed. And t- depending on what uh, era the show they're going to be covering is in, he needs to know, you know, what beat for, you know, a Slipknot was the, the one they were using at that time. And I found that so fascinating because, again, I, I just didn't spend enough time appreciating, you know, the music going through there at that moment. I recognized the parts that I recognized, and the rest of it was just great Jerry jams where I'm sure I was blissed out and, you know, loving life at the moment or whatever and it's it's uh but it's a great tune and it's great to hear and uh it's a great example of this new guitar yeah for sure and uh you know speaking of fish sorry i missed you last weekend i was hoping to make it out to alpine come out and hang out with you for a couple days but it sounds like you got a couple fun nights out there you how how are the shows shows were great um and yeah i am sorry you missed Uh, it turned out that i had uh a couple of extra tickets and reached out to Rob who I knew was on the East coast, eventually heading back to the West coast and Chicago's right in the middle of everything. So we kept our fingers crossed. He could not make it, but I wound up uh, uh, with great company. Uh, my good buddy, Kevin drove me up there one night, got me my seat. So I sat next to him all three nights, got me my VIP parking passes. So every night we were out of Alpine Valley within 10 minutes and on the road. So Kevin, huge shout out to you, man. You're the best. Uh, my son was there, although he was hanging out with his the rest of his crew up on the lawn, they, they're big guys going up to sit, you know, on the blanket up on the lawn. And Kevin is like me. That's all nice. We'll come see you at halftime. But for the show, baby, I want to be under the roof and, you know, feel the, uh, feel the energy coming back out towards me. And uh, just one other quick shout out I have to give. The very first night, we, we got a, um, a pavilion pass. So we had the same seat for all three nights, so, which was fine. But you got to know the people around you really well because they were the same people, basically, for all three nights. And... Right at the end of our seats on our row, the next group of seats was uh, 
held down by a, a group made up of Tara, her boyfriend Phil, uh, Jerry, Jackie, a guy named Lucas, I think. All of them, they were all really cool. And the first night was Tara's 100th fish show. So she was really psyched. And I was telling her, I'm just psyched because it's a fish show. And uh, But, you know, they were there the second night, the third night. And that's that's kind of the fun. You know, I, I really miss that from the Grateful Dead where you'd go to a show and you could be sitting next to somebody. And the next thing, they're your best buddy. And anytime you see them there or at any other show, you know, you've got that connection. Um, and so they were all really cool. And we're hoping to bump into Tara and Phil and maybe more of them at Sacred Rose in a couple of weeks. And uh, if you guys are listening, great to hang out with you, Tara. Killer 100th show. Um, look, you know, I, I, as I was telling you before, I'm at that stage of being a, a fish head where, you know, it gets dangerous because I know a lot of the songs now. So when you get to know the songs, you know, you, you start to order them in your mind in terms of, well, I'd really like to hear this one. I'd really like to hear that one. And as any deadhead knows, it gets really dangerous when you go to a show, you know, really counting on the fact you're going to hear the song you want and that they're going to be on that same wavelength. When it happens, it's wonderful. When it doesn't, you know, it can be frustrating. But nevertheless, what I find about Fish that I like so much is even when they would dive into a song that I really wasn't quite ready for, I really didn't know that well, or about a third of the way through, he's jamming so hard, they're all, they're all jamming so hard, and the crowd is screaming so loud that you're like, this is just great. And, you know, and you just roll with it. And, and you know, right from the get-go on, on this first night of August 12th, the Friday night, with Fuego coming out and opening, and uh, a Haley's Comet, which after the first time I heard it and I couldn't figure out for the life of me how any song could just have one lyric repeated 50 times in a row, uh, I now find that I enjoy the tune very much and the jamming that comes off of it is a lot of fun. I'm a big fan of Destiny Unbound and the MoMA dance I really like. And the, the nonsense lyrics at the end. Of, of the MoMA dance? No, no, of, uh, of Haley's. There's that whole nonsense, like, you know, the, uh, the, the plates of spaghetti and the, uh, you know... Right. No, you're exactly right. And, and I mean, all those lyrics when you stop and you, and you listen to them are, are kind of nutty, but but... Like every other song with Fish, what ultimately happens is the music wins me over so much that, you know, the lyrics, to me, just become more of a, a, a time placement thing in terms of where in the song they are. I mean, some of them are silly. I think Sleeping Monkey is a lot of fun. I love those lyrics. I was hoping to see that. I didn't. I like the lyrics in NICU. I was hoping to see that. I didn't. I was hoping to catch a You Enjoy Myself, and I didn't catch that. But on the other hand, um, you know, I got an Ass Handed, which was great from John. Uh, I got a Golden Age, which is a great tune that I've always loved. Uh, Ghost is always a, a great one from them. A really good David Bowie. And then for the encores is where it really paid off for me. I got my first Lizards ever. So I was very happy to catch my first Lizards. And Tara was very happy to see Lizards on her 100th show. And then just to uh, really put a capper on it, they uh, jumped into more, which was a song that had been on my list of, of songs that I knew I had heard before, but I hadn't really appreciated them at the time, so I was hoping I would hear it, and we got that, so uh, that was tremendous fun. Um, the Saturday night show, my wife came up and joined me, and look, I, I'm, I'm, it, I kind of felt like the night I was at the Den, they played St. Stephen, right? You know something special is happening, but you really can't gauge the, the level of how special it is, and they came open up with 1999 into Fluffhead, and into Saw It Again. And I'm going to turn that over to you, Rob, to explain the uh, significance of those tunes coming in that order. Yeah, well, I mean, this is where, again, we turn into real nerds on the show. And, uh, you know, anyone that's out there listening might, might just be like, what are you guys talking about? But 1999 is obviously the, the Prince song, not the, uh, not the Fish song. And, uh, you know, the, the significance of it is if you ask most, you know, Fish fans what the uh, all-time greatest uh, Fluffhead was, they would tell you, like, without a doubt, it was Alpine Valley 1999. So, you know, here they are back in Alpine Valley, and so they open up the show with the 1999 and then go into Fluffhead, uh, sort of to recreate, like, hey, you know, we're, we're paying homage to the fact that we know the best Fluffhead we ever played was here in 1999, and then play Saw It Again afterwards, which is like, you know, all right, you, we saw Fluffhead here in 1999, and uh, you just saw it again. So, I mean, and, and by the way, Fish is one of the only bands that's that creative. They've always done that for the third night of, um, of Dick's Sporting Goods during, um, during Labor Day weekend, where, you know, they'll spell things out and you've got to try to figure out what the message is. But, you know, this is one that was more, um, more subtle that, you know, if you didn't sort of catch what they were doing. But, you know, it was, it was, it's one of those things that whenever anyone ever talks about Alpine, 80, or Alpine 99, the first thing that comes out of people's mouths is like, oh, yeah, the Fluffhead. Like, that was the Fluffhead. So it's a really clever way for them to, uh, to acknowledge that, uh, that the fans loved that version so much. 
Yeah, and and you know this is where you know just being kind of a, a newbie, uh, you know, fish head term in terms of the knowledge really comes into play. I I knew that they had covered Prince tunes before, and I just assumed this was another example of them covering Prince tunes. And then all of a sudden, Tara and Phil and that whole crew and Kevin and the, no man, they don't play this very often. This is only like the third or fourth time they've ever played it. And I was like, oh, okay, well that's kind of fun to catch a a rarity like that. And 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 I you know my feeling about Fluffhead is I realize it's a great you know the fish heads all love it. It's their big tune. I listen to it. I like the tune a lot. I don't quite get the whole, this is the tune of tunes, but I don't have to. I just enjoy it for what it is. And, you know, it's silly. It's great, well-played, and everybody has a great time when they play it. So why the fuck not, right? That's, uh, and, and saw it again, I had never heard before, but, you know, in the context in which you're describing it, uh, it certainly makes sense to do it. Um, there was a great back on the train, uh, a petrichord, and then uh, right at the end of the set, right when everybody was thought for sure they were heading off and some people were already on their way out to the bathroom, uh, a tray turned around and jumped into Squirming Coil. And I really like Squirming Coil, but what I really like about it is at the end when Paige is on the stage by himself playing, and he had about a five-minute piano solo out there where he was just teasing everything under the sun. He was teasing Loving Cup. According to the write-up, he was supposedly teasing the theme from the Speed Racer show, although I can't say that I heard that. But it, but I, you know, I think that with Trey right out in front doing all of his stuff, that sometimes, at least for me, I can't speak for other fish heads, it's kind of easy to overlook the level of talent that a guy like Paige brings to the table. And, you know, as a trained musician who, I mean, who, who really is knows exactly what he's doing and he, he he handled it beautifully it was beautiful music and you know what i love is that the fish heads gave him like three standing ovations in the middle of it and he would stop and you know acknowledge and thank you thank you and then go right back and play and they'd be right and they love him you know it was like when you'd get a great solo from brent or something and the dead fans would you know erupt and you know because we're always so focused on jerry and bobby or in this case trey and, and you know and john to a lesser uh, mike gordon to a lesser degree um you know, it was fun to see that. It was fun to see, uh, you know, Paige get his moment in the sun. And uh, I thought that that, was, that went really well. Uh, second set, we got a really killer maze, which if I had heard it before, I, I couldn't remember. Uh, a Mr. Completely, which I'm a novice enough to say I had no idea how rare that tune is. And uh, everybody loved that. Uh, and About to Run, which my son was dead set on seeing, and he got to see it. And uh, that was a fun tune. We really enjoyed it. Um, and what's kind of strange, though, the second night, the first night they played well past 11 o'clock, and my friend Kevin was explaining to me, you know, at Alpine Valley, they hit you big with money for every minute over your allotted time that you play. But that first night, they sure didn't seem to care. The second night, they ended the set at 10.45, the second set, came right back out and played a really, really great version of Blaze On, but they were done at 10.55 and walked off. So everybody said, oh, Trey's getting ready for... You know, he's getting ready for Sunday night, and uh, this this is going to be the killer. So um, we all went back on Sunday night. The whole, the whole crowd was there again. They opened up with Landlady, and my son was not there Sunday night. He he had to fly back to Boston. Um, and, but right away, he, he's following the song. Listen, I get a text. This is what they opened up Sunday night in, in uh, 2019, the night that was, you know, their big bust-out night a few years ago. So, again, I have to believe that's just Fish giving a shout-out to the fact that when they were there in 2019 on Sunday night, they opened with Landlady and played an amazing show, um, you know, and everybody was totally psyched to hear it. And after that, it seemed, you know, a little more standard fish to me, right? Runaway Jim, Divided Sky, 46 Days, Stealing Time from the Faulty Plan. Um, and then uh, they, they closed the set with a really great Everything's Right, which is another tune I've, I've really liked. But I kept talking to the guys around me, and the tune I finally settled on that I really needed to hear was Possum. Uh, and I've heard Possum before, but I've never really heard it and appreciated it. And the second set, you know, open with Energy and Degada Jabu, which is a great song I love. Uh, Soul Planet, not bad. Rift Reba, standard stuff. Martian Monster, which is one of those things that me personally, I wish they would just not play. But this is fun. At the end of the Martian Monster, John did a broken heart attack solo where he ran around the stage five times, wound up in front singing with Trey back on the drums. And I had no idea that Trey knew how to play the drums and he was playing the drums as you know and having a great time they were just having fun and as they were winding down out of that as as, as uh fishman got back to the drums he started the um percussion beat into possum and all the guys around me who had been hearing me talk about it were like dude here's your possum and you know when you're looking for a song all night all weekend and they finally give it to you they didn't they didn't disappoint it was a it was a killer possum and uh it was a lot of fun slave to the traffic light great closer 
and then the encores were Waste, which I didn't know very well, but that's my buddy Kevin's. That's That was his first dance to that tune when he and his wife got married. And First Tube, and I, I love First Tube. I thought that was a great song. I, if I had heard it before again, I had no recollection of having heard it before. And, you know, as Jonathan Schwartz would say, that, my friends, is how you fish, but uh, I won't steal his line. Um, it was a uh, it was a great time. It was, you know, three great nights of uh, high-energy rock and roll, and... Um, you know, the, the crowd just couldn't appreciate it more, and everybody was really psyched. And um, I hadn't been to a three-night run in Alpine Valley like that in years. So, you know, there, there was definitely some stamina challenges for me. But, uh, you know, we survived and, and made it all the way through. And like I say, I had a great group of friends who were up there to stay with me and give me rides. My buddy Kevin drove me up. My buddy Rob drove me home uh, through some totally unknown bucolic route late at night through Wisconsin with all the cornfields blowing in the breeze. And um, it was a lot of fun. So I, I know that uh, back in the day, you were quite the aficionado, uh, as it were. Um, and, and I'm certainly much more of a latecomer to the game. Uh, but I can tell you, you know, any, I, I, I'm still not doing a lot of traveling for them. But anytime they're near me, I don't see how I, you can't go see them. They're just too much fun. Yeah, well, I can tell you that you just named a lot of songs that you got to see that my, my children would love to. Because uh, Teddy just asked uh, possibly to put on his Instagram uh, playlist that... My wife tried to resist, and he forced it on her, saying, no, 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 I want Possum on there. And my daughters put both Fluffhead and, um, and uh, Haley's Comet on hers. So, you know, with my daughters, it's all mixed in with, like, pop tunes these days. You know, it's a lot of, like, you know, you name the, uh, the, the pop star as well as, like, all the kids' pop stuff. But then she has a couple of fish tunes on there, and Teddy has, a, Teddy has a handful, but he begged for Possum. And my wife's just like, come on, like, I don't want to listen to this in the car all the time. And he's like, no, Possum, Possum, I want Possum. Uh, so it's not just you that's that's waiting for his possum. That's what turned me on to that. I remember uh, on Christmas, right, we were emailing back and forth, and I was telling you, my wife's out of the house for a little while. I'm sitting here listening to the Who Do Tommy live from, you know, one of the festivals at the, at the Isle of Wight Festival, and you say, oh, well, my son and I, the wife's out of the house, we've got a full-blown possum going, and we're all dancing around. And I was like, possum, huh? And after that, I started going back and listening to it. I was like, I am ready for this, man. Let's go. Bring it on. And... You know, it's, it's just like that feeling of being at the Dead show. I remember, I remember when I caught my first Scarlet Fire and just how excited I was that they were playing the damn tune, you know. And there it was. It, that's, it's just great to still be able to catch that thrill. So, uh, so the, the big question is, lots of weed at that show? I'm guessing, uh, you know, clouds billowing over the, uh, the stage? I got to tell you, it's, uh, I mean, the Dead had huge party crowds too, and, and maybe I just don't remember. But we were sitting about two-thirds of the way back in the pavilion, and there were times looking up at the stage when the smoke was so thick, I could not see through it. It just was huge billows of smoke coming up under the roof. And I know the tray is pretty clean these days, but uh, they certainly seem to be having a fun time up on stage and you know, not minding the fact that all of this is going on. And uh, another song that I didn't get to hear that, that certainly would have been fun under these circumstances, right, is Makasupa Policeman. Isn't that all about, uh, he always makes cracks about weed and stuff like that when he's doing that tune. But yeah, it was it was a big party crowd. Everybody there was small. It was like pretty much everyone. I, it was one of the you know since it was first time since the Dead show when I got to a concert with a bunch of my own weed and I never needed to smoke any of it. Yeah, and the good news is that unlike New York City, it's real weed. Yeah, so uh, it's not like not like what's happening right now. If you've been watching the news, where uh, I think twenty of uh, these fake weed trucks just got yanked off the streets uh, in the last couple of days, and you know. <laughs> I don't know if anyone out there has been to, to New York City recently, but New York is just crammed full of these, uh, quote, weed trucks, which aren't, you know, licensed dispensaries. They're not licensed by the state. They're not licensed by the city. And they've just started popping up. And, you know, some people think they're selling D8. Some people think they're just selling flat-out weed. They claim they're not selling anything that's got any psychoactive cannabinoids at all. But at this point, the city's had enough. And uh, as of, you know, the last couple of days... They've uh, gone out there and just started towing these guys, you know, some for parking fines and some just saying you guys are unlicensed um, retailers of cannabis products, so you're gone. I don't, know if, uh, I don't know if you've been seeing any of the same stuff happening in Chicago, but it's kind of crazy that New York has allowed this to get people to get away with this for so long before actually doing anything about it. Yeah, Chicago, they, they regulate that too tightly. They need the money. They, they'd be on you in day one. And, and under even selling hemp is, is, is complicated, right? Because while it's legal, you still have to let the people know you're doing it and, and get everybody's permission and all of that. But, you know, look, again, this is what happens, right? Isn't this the result like we've talked about in the past? We're now talking like, I mean, New York, they voted legal weed in. They voted adult use in. 
but it's not there yet. And, and while these programs struggle to get online, all these other people are running in to fill in the gaps while they can. And, you know, that's what these guys are doing. And, yeah, the, and the problem is the consumer, the consumer doesn't know the difference, right? You know, the consumer sits there going, okay, well, I'm seeing weed out here. And it's like, they don't know who's a licensed retailer and who isn't. I mean, I've had friends like our, our mutual friend Dave Branfman, you know, a couple of years ago was telling me at dinner one night that he went into a certain town and was like, you know, buying, uh, buying weed in Southern California. And the other guy and I at dinner were like, well, you know, there is no legal weed in that town. You went into a trap shop. And he's like, wait, what? But I thought I was supporting like the new industry, you know, the, the, the new legalized weed. So like, and that's someone that works in the industry. That's someone that's pretty in tune with, with what's happening. But in New York City, you get a tourist that comes in. They go, oh, yeah, is this weed legal in New York? And so I was like, oh, yeah, we legalized it. They're like, okay, I'll go over to that truck and buy something. You know, these guys are making an absolute killing over the ignorance of the uh, the general public as to, like, what's allowed and what's not. And they're calling their products the same name as everything else. You know, like, you can buy, like, you know, buds of Gary Payton, but it, it might not be the Gary Payton you have in California. It's, you know, what you're getting in New York, and it could be hemp. It could be something else sprayed with, you know, some sort of, like, fake cannabinoid. But uh, there's got to be a bright line delineation. What did P.T. Barnum say? Yeah, sucker born every day, right? But in this case, I don't think they're suckers. I, I think there's a, you know, there's a misinformation gap. No, they're just ill-informed. Yeah, yeah, and then I think it's, I think they have to, you know, display something that says like the way like, Dutch coffee shops have that sticker on them that lets you know that they're actually legal. There should be something that allows people to say, okay, is this group, you know, a legally licensed cannabis retailer? And are they actually selling the product that I think I'm buying? Well, I would say that that's on the state, but I think it's even more on the industry. The people in the industry who are out there, they have to step up and they have to call this out for what it is and, you know, and make us think about it because it's, it's, it's their potential business that's getting taken away. And not only is it getting taken away, but it creates a negative buzz for the industry and that doesn't help them at all. In fact, it hurts them. So, you know, it, it would be nice to see some cooperation among government and uh, you know the the bigger MSOs and and some of the other uh, successful parties out there, uh, you know, to try and step in and, and and push for those types of regulations. Because look, there's you know, New York is how many times can you go to New York and buy a really expensive knockoff watch, a really expensive knockoff ladies' purse, a really expensive knockoff anything, you know, and think you and think you've just gotten the greatest deal in the world till you go home and your you know your local jeweler friend takes a look at that and says you just got taken to the cleaners, right? And that's New York City's famous for that. So you know maybe with weed. Too, well, to, to reference our next song clip from uh, from Autzen, you know, if I had my way, I'd burn all those fake retailers down. And so it's, uh, you know, <laughs> you got you got to be careful about uh, you know where you're buying. Got to make sure you know um, know what you're what you're going after. So, but yeah, like it's a it's a crazy interesting story that I know is not over yet. But you know, maybe we we'll get back to some Grateful Dead here for a minute. So I mean, Dan, um, yeah, I, I I queued up um, Samson as as the next choice in here, and again for a lot of the same reasons I did the Slipknot. And that's uh, you know it's, it's got some uh, you know great ability to um, to showcase the new Cripe guitar. Being Sunday, as Bobby would famously say, yep. You know it's a Sunday night with the Samson. Yep, a hundred percent. I always like the tune. I love the I love the drums entering into the song. I love the energy with it. You know, it's it's. Uh, there's probably some people who are like, you can only hear so many Samson and Delilahs, but I always find it enjoyable. And and you know, Bobby always gives it good energy. And you know, it's a fun story for those of us who went to Sunday school. Yeah, look, in, in 1993, uh, it's pretty rare to get a 10-song second set, right? And that's what we, uh, that's what we got this night with the helps of Franklin's, uh, Samson, Ship of Fools, Karina, and then Out of Space, A Wheel, Miracle, Days Between, and then, uh, not, fade, and then not Fade Away before the Liberty Encore. So it was rare. You know, normally, like, second sets turn into like you know, six or seven songs max, but anytime you get a helps of Franklin's opener, you kind of expect it to tone down after that, and that's when you get the Ship of Fools. But it being Sunday, uh, they dropped right into the Samson. 
Speaking of um, burning buildings down and, and, and sort of, uh, did you see that Burner from uh, from Cookies is on the cover of Forbes magazine this month? I did. Well, I, I hadn't, but when you sent the, uh, the the story over, I saw it. And hey, look, you know, marijuana guy's making it big, man. I love that. Forbes magazine. I mean, you know, hell, for God's sake, that's like, we're not talking about Rolling Stone. That That is huge. That's big time. You know, that they it, It's big time that they would want to feature somebody like that. And then it's big time to get to be the guy they feature. Yeah, it's the first time they've actually put a uh, first time they put a weed CEO on the cover of Forbes the entire time they've had the magazine. So you know, other definitely other publications have done it. As you said, Rolling Stone has done it, Newsweek's done it. You know, but but Forbes is kind of more of a, a buttoned up, respected publication. They've been great about following the cannabis industry for a while. Um, you know, they certainly have two or three cannabis writers that are on staff at this point. Uh, my buddy Chris Crane being one of them that you know writes to them pretty frequently, but. Um, the, the interesting thing I think I, I thought about Burner being on the cover wasn't just, you know, the, the novelty of having a Canvas CEO on the cover, but it was the, the quote that he has on the cover of the magazine, which is, you know, it's hard to sell legal weed, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people have this mis- misconception that Burner actually sells weed, you know, because he is the, the face behind cookies as a brand. But, you know, if you actually understand the cookies contracts, Burner doesn't sell weed. Burner sells packaging. Burner sells a, a, a lifestyle. He sells, you know, the, the brand stuff. He sells a lot of apparel. And he licenses his name to, you know, different growers to be able to sell stuff that's packaged in his boxes. And they pay him for the, uh, the privilege. So he takes, you know, a couple percent rake off of every product that's sold in the cookie's name. But he's never sold a legal bud in his life. But, you know, that, that's, I mean, well, that's just, yeah, never sold a legal bud. Is, is I think accurate, as I said. But, uh, you know, the, the perception is that he's probably the biggest seller of weed in America right now. And it's amazing to me that, again, the consumer knows so much less than the, than the industry insiders of, like, you know, just the same way Willie Nelson doesn't sell weed and Garcia doesn't sell weed. You know, they, they license their name to people that sell weed with their with their likeness on it or with, the you know, their product name attached to it. But, you know, Burner's been, been really, really clever about how he's built this massive empire across, you know, probably 15 states at this point uh, using the Cookies brand name. Very cool. It, you know, it, look, it's just a big moment, and it, it just, it's just—it's—it's another milestone for the industry as it moves, you know, towards its path, uh, you know, towards normalization. Um, and you know, it'll really be something when they feature somebody on the cover of the magazine for marijuana who's not otherwise already famous, right? You know, when they show like a Charlie Bactel or a Ben Kovler or one of those guys, uh, you know, and, and they're 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 being featured for their uh, celebrity status as you know the marijuana, you know, giants that they've grown into. And, and I suspect, you know, we'll get there as well. And, you know, that all of that will be celebrated in its own time, in its own way. Um, but it's just nice to see. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of people that, that uh, would re- be reading that magazine and looking at that. My father, for instance. So, you know, I always makes me wonder what him or, you know, the guys in his generation, what they think when all of a sudden they see, a, 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 you know, a respected business magazine playing around with all this marijuana stuff. But uh, I think it's a sign of the times. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, 10 years ago when you saw some of these magazines uh, first covering, I remember the first time I was interviewed by Bloomberg, you know, the, the quotes that they gave me, you know, they were trying to bait me into silly things, you know, like, uh, do you have any Art Crumb comics behind your counter at your shops? And I was sort of like, really, guys? Like, you know, the, the, you're trying to intentionally cheapen what it is that we do for a living and, and sort of poke fun at it. And you're trying to get that quote out of me to, you know, like, where my answer was like, is that even a real question? You know, it's like, uh, uh, you can't really uh, allow them to bait you into it. Whereas now the uh, the articles actually the coverage about the industry is you know what's happening with your business how'd you build the business you know what makes it exciting it's it's no longer you know quietly mocking you from behind the scenes expecting that you're not going to notice what it is they're trying to do and again I think journalists in general are, are great at doing that they try to sensationalize everything because it sells more copy but um, but you know that's why you know getting getting editorial control of the story you're featured in is usually important um, because they. They can't paint the industry into a corner. Well, not when you have an industry that, you know, in the last few years has had sales, you know, as high as 975 million or whatever these numbers are that, you know, some of these people are getting, you know, just these insane numbers that uh, people are getting for selling off their, when they sell off their whole uh, portfolio of licenses, right? I mean, and they and they can generate, when, when you have an industry that's generating that kind of money, you you can't ignore it, right? I mean, the, the, the big... Uh, commercial uh, financial magazines and publications can't ignore that kind of money. They have to acknowledge that it's out yep. there. Without a doubt. I mean, obviously it's come down come down quite a bit recently and, you know, we had, saw Earnings Week happen with all the publics. So it's it's not quite not quite what it was, but, um, you know, revenue is still increasing. We're just waiting to see whether or not, you know, 
the next pop happens. But a lot of that is you know largely attributed to whether or not safe banking goes through. And uh, you know we got some news out of that today as well that you know Cory Booker seems to be uh, you know intentionally trying to kibosh safe in favor of trying to add additional provisions to it that um, would would make it a bit more um, equity focused than it is today. Which again I'm I'm totally in favor of, and I think that you know social equity uh, should be pushed more. And I love what just happened in uh, in um, uh, to Massachusetts that my friend Chanel Lindsay helped push through. But there's, there's a lot of stuff that's happening on the equity front. I don't know if we want to derail the single most important piece of legislation to the industry right now over something that you know, can be fixed retroactively or through a different piece of legislation. I understand that this might not go as far as Booker wants or as far as you know, different, um, different groups in the industry want. But if you actually want to see the industry you know, take off and actually have access to capital again and watch asset values start to rise, you've got to do something. And that something first is, is passing safe. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm a big fan of social equity. However, I'm not going to lie, I've become very disillusioned because I have yet to see a state, including Illinois, uh, for all their talk about social equity, actually put together a true social equity plan that will achieve the goals that they're looking for. Um, you know, and, and we don't have to sit here right now and go through all the problems with what some of these states have done. But it becomes a very complicated proposition, and that's because when you get into the issue of social equity, what I might deem to be equitable is certainly not something what somebody else might deem to be equitable. And if you're talking about people of color, you know, I'm sure they're going to come at it from a different perspective than you and I. I'm a big fan of social equity, and I would like to see it work if it can be made you know, to work in, on some level. But it's a, it's a process that's going to take time and is going to take a lot of input from people and a lot of patience and a lot of everything. And while all of that is going on, we need banking. We can't you, we can't let banking be held hostage to these other issues. As much as we need to have social equity, without banking, the, the industry as a whole suffers anyway. If we're going to have social equity, I would think it would be great for the social equity owners to know that they can go down to their local neighborhood bank and be able to get money and not have to deal with third-party private lenders who will most likely offer terms far more you know, outrageous than anything you could get from a bank if they were willing to do business with well, you. That's why I love the Massachusetts law that just you know, got enacted, uh, the one I was just making reference to, is it actually has a pool of capital set aside that you know, applicants uh, that, that meet the equity requirements can start tapping into, that you know, they can finance uh, through the state or you know, what their, um, their build-out's gonna be. So you're not taking predatory lending and you're not essentially you know, going all the cashes and being sucked right back out by the same people you're trying to avoid. So you know, if you're really trying to empower people that have been prejudiced by the drug war, whether it's people of color or whether it's ex, you know, felons from, from nonviolent drug offenses, those people need a way to actually um, to access capital that's not going back to the same guys they're trying to prevent from just getting licenses in the first place. So it was, it was really, you know, in many ways, the equity programs, have, we've talked about this before, have been you know, largely um, uh, sort of straw men operations anyway. But you know, at this point, if you can actually put a pool of capital together to, to empower um, people to access the market, that's fantastic. But I don't think that necessarily needs to be done at the federal level. I love the fact that states are taking that in their own hands. So as you said, you know, please, Cory Booker, we need SAFE to go through. We don't, need, um, we don't need another delay on this. If we actually want to see the industry survive in a lot of states, access to capital, access to banking, access to, um, to um, the NASDAQ or the NICE, all these things are critically important to our industry. And, um, and you know, yes, there, there are many other things that need to be fixed as well, but I'm a huge fan of incremental change, and right now we need to put up a W because the, uh, the industry has been putting up a lot of L's for the last year and a half. A hundred percent. And here's the, not to harp on social equity any more than uh, we need to, but the biggest problem here, and this is what you just said a second ago, Rob, it has to be made available for the people who qualify for social equity, for the people of color, for the people who have been victims of the war on drugs, which in Illinois is defined as meaning you've been arrested, not even convicted. You've been arrested for a marijuana offense. You know who gets arrested, arrested for marijuana offenses? The really, really rich, rich white kids who live in, you know, the, the near north suburbs here who go to the, you know, the public schools that are the really high end public schools and they all have access to marijuana at ridiculously young ages and they all one after another at some point in time get you know get pinched for smoking a joint or having it in their car all of a sudden their social equity under illinois law and this is what happened at least in illinois they, they were so determined not to create social equity based solely on racial lines that they tried to come up with something that they figured the odds would just put more of those types of people in but because anyone could qualify for social equity 
you had to, otherwise you had no chance of getting a license. So people would go out, either bring in a straw man or, hey, I was busted when I was 15. I'm going to fall back and rely on that. And that's why social equity doesn't work because we leave openings that allow the people we're trying to not get all the licenses still step in and get all the licenses. You know, I think some of the MSOs have even worked with, you know, social equity candidates for purposes of trying to get, uh, you know, more licenses. And I'm not here to, to criticize them or, or to praise them for it one way or the other. All I'm saying is, is that if we really want to have social equity, we have to sit down and we have to really define what social equity is. And we have to say, we're going to have a group of people who clearly qualify as social equity under anyone's definition. It doesn't just have to be based on race, but it should be based on race. It should be based on finance. It should be based on a lot of different things. And then say we're going to give out 70 licenses, 20, 75 licenses, 25 of them are going to go to the people in this pool who are social equity candidates, and all the other people will compete on their own level for the other 50 licenses. And then you know 25 of the licenses are going to go to social equity people, but they won't do that. You know, and they, they, they play this game that, oh, well, we can't do that. We can't just do it based on race. That would be, you know, unconstitutional or, you know, a violation. And don't do it that way, but you can break it down in enough ways. But, you know, when it's Illinois, the first question is, well, they didn't want to break it down this way because these are all the big contributors, and so they want to set it up so that anybody can step in, you know, can, and can get those licenses. And they've done a very bad job of trying to convince people otherwise. Yeah, that's yeah, a... Uh... It's definitely not a problem we're going to fix overnight, but I really wish they wouldn't be trying to fix it while SAFE is so close to, uh, to being passed. And by all counts, you know, SAFE should go through this year and it should be signed um, into law. And if it is, you know, again, it's not, you know, we talked about this before, that I don't know whether or not that's going to mean the banks are going to participate, but it at least allows them to if they so choose. So it's a heck of a lot further along than we are right now. So so we will see, and let's watch this one closely. And, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to get a chance to speak to some of the people that are on the left that are, you know, strong advocates for cannabis legalization, but at the same time, only under uh, certain parameters where it's got to meet their definition of, you know, going far enough to include um, uh, certain provisions they want, which, by the way, I agree with those p provisions 100%, but not to the exclusion of losing the bill completely. You know, like, you, you can't let a bill die because you're pushing it too far. And, and look, that's, that's a classic Washington, D.C. tactic, right? A bill's going through, we're going to go tack on 50 other things, you know, and, and try and do it that way. The answer is no. Absolutely not. Financing in this industry, it will. if we get the SAFE Act passed, it will benefit social equity people in a way that they're not currently benefited. It will give them the opportunity to go into a neighborhood bank like any other business and try and get a loan to be able to compete in the industry in which they've now been given a license. And to, to, to you know, right, if we know that if there's no banking, the rich guys still have people they can go and get their money from. The social equity people, not so much. So it, 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 I don't think that's a very well thought out strategy. Yeah, I, I agree. One, one other little thing I just want to throw in there. I'm not a resident of the state of New York, but for those of you who are, the New York State Fair is going to allow people to smoke marijuana in the designated smoking areas this year. And reading the article about it, it's as though the only issue is where are you smoking it, not the fact that people are smoking marijuana in public. And I love that. Right. All the quotes are like, well, we don't want to have to we understand people are going to want to smoke, but we don't want people to be encouraged to smoke around families and kids. So we're going to give them their own separate area where they can go and smoke. Now, 99 percent of the time, if you're at a state fair and you walk into a smoking area, it's cigarettes or, or tobacco only. They don't expand it enough to say, hey, you guys who want to smoke THC, go right ahead. But now they're giving you the green light. And I got to say, you know, if you go to one of those things and you get busted walking around the fair smoking, you're a moron. You know, if you can't take 10 minutes to go off to one of those areas and sit there and smoke what you want to smoke and then go back and take care of business, you know, good for them. Hats off to New York. I love that. Yeah, it sounds like the other, the plus EV Ferguson um, cannabis question. Well, separate but equal. You know, it's, uh, yes. we, we, can keep you, right. we can keep you away from everyone, but, uh, you know, you're, you're allowed to smoke. Just not over here, you know, but you're, 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 you're fine. Um, look, you know, we watched California already do it with outside lands, but people find anything that's combustible offensive. I mean, look, I find cigarette smoke offensive. I've got no problems with separating cigarette smokers away from the crowd because I don't really want to be around it. If there's people that find cannabis smoke offensive, look, fine, I, I, I get it. If you want to put, you know, a, a little bit of distance between us, that's great. The better part is can you actually at least, you know, consume cannabis on, on New York State um, public grounds property? And that's where, you know, like, 
Well, I'm waiting to see whether or not Kathy Hochul steps in and says, wait a second, guys, there's a law against, you know, consuming on any, um, you know, New York public lands. So I, I find it interesting that the fair has said yes. I'm just curious whether or not the state then comes back and says no, because it still violates another law that, you know, we, we either have to create some sort of a carve out for it or we need to, um, to, to figure out a way to, uh, to amend. But as of right now, I think there's a, a conflict in law between, you know, what can be done, what can't if it's on state lands. I think you're absolutely right. And look, it's just wonderful, right? I, I completely agree that all smoking should be separated. You know, the worst thing is, you know, even at the fish show, you know, since everybody's smoking anyway, they're not going to come in and try and enforce non-smoking rules. And I love all the smoking until the person in front of you lights up a cigarette and does the old holds it on the side thing, right? When I was five or ten, ten years old, I wanted to lean over to the person and say, why don't you hold it in front of your own face? Why are you holding it in front of my face? But yeah, I mean, I, I, I still have a knee-jerk reaction to tobacco smoke too. So I, I imagine people have the same kind of reaction to marijuana smoke. That's great. Just give us a place, right? It, it, the, it, I don't think anybody's going to care unless it's like some really gross place they're sending you off to. But just the idea that you can go and do it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And that, that's going to really be a lot of fun. So looking forward to that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. By the way, you know, the dead used to always play. When they used to play in Oregon for years, it was in a county fairground. It was always in Veneta County Fairgrounds. And, you know, I'm guessing nowadays that Veneta, you'd be able to smoke cannabis, no problems, just the same way you can at outside lands in San Francisco and Golden Gate Park. But, uh, but I don't know if you could have on the University of Oregon's campus at, a, at Autzen Stadium. So, you know, I know I asked you before the show, Larry, if you've ever been to Autzen. Autzen was right in the middle of campus at, um, at University of Oregon. Now I can tell you that you know Oregon probably consumes more cannabis per pound, you know, per like pound for pound than any other state in America, and I think Eugene probably uh, I would put Eugene up against any city in America as far as cannabis consumption. Um, you know, it was for years not just uh, great football players coming out of that school, but it was a ton of hippies coming out of that school, and uh, I had more fun in that city, in that or I shouldn't even call it a city, that that large town for years than almost anywhere else. That you know when the Grateful Dead decided to play there. Uh, again, I was you know delighted, and it's one of the most fun places. Like I'm not a huge stadium show fan, but um, but when you do a small stadium like Folsom Field in Boulder, or you know, uh, or Autzen Stadium at U of O, it's a it's a totally different vibe. It's kind of like you know you might not like indoor arenas, but then you go to Hampton, and you're like okay, you know I, I get it. You know there's some places that that work, but um, but the, before we you know sort of end uh, all the stuff we're doing on the show today. The, the key reason I picked this show, outside of the, the coolness factor of uh, Autzen and the coolness of, like, you know, the, the new guitar, was there's one highlight from that night that, you know, I talked to you about that I don't think a lot of people know about, which is that they opened that night with a jack straw. And, uh, and in the jack straw, Weir was having a lot of problems with his, uh, with his Stratocaster. And he kept trying to get it to work, and it kept not working, and he got really frustrated. And you could see him on stage visibly upset that his, that his guitar wasn't working. And he kept going back to his stack and trying to work with it and trying to like, get his text to work with it. And finally, right before the jam started, he kind of just had enough and he just storms off, just walks off stage. And he does it right as the jam was starting. And doesn't come back. And Garcia goes into the jam and, and just starts going for it, I think expecting that we would get back before you know they came back in to sing Jack Straw from Wichita, you know, the, sort of the, the crescendo portion of it. And Weir just doesn't come back. So you've got, I think it's a three minute and 40 something second jam of Garcia just going solo. And, you know, it, I can't think of another time that I saw the dead where I actually got to see, you know, Garcia be the sole guitar player up on stage, especially during a jam. It'd be one thing if it was like, you know, during verses of like, let's say like a Peggio, you know, and Weir walks off and it's like this nice, quiet, sort of slow tempo, like looping. But this was like full tilt Jack Straw jam with a brand new guitar and just crushing it. Um, so, and, and rumor has it that backstage, when we were went back there, he was so pissed off that he smashed his guitar to bits. Now, whether or not that's true, I've, I've heard rumors of people that, you know, because it's a stadium show, people that could actually see into the backstage area from, you know, the, the far side of the stadium. So, allegedly, there's a lot of rumors out there that it's true, and then he came back out playing a different guitar that still had some tech issues. But the, the good part about it, is arguably, I'd say it's definitely the best Jack Straw jam of the 90s and arguably one of the best Jack Straw jams of all time. And if you look it up on like Hetty version, it's certainly the one that from like the 90s gets, you know, way more, um, you know, thumbs up votes. But uh, did you get a chance to listen to this one before the show? I did. It's very exciting and I'm uh, excited to share it with everyone. You're right. It's, it, 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 it gives them a, a very noticeably different sound 
when it's just and and quite frankly, I think that's a tribute to Weir, really. You know that that that's not designed to be a backhanded, you know, compliment. That that's a tribute to Weir, um, because what we're what we're not hearing is all of the little fillers and all the things that he normally puts in there. And 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 although Garcia's playing is is beautiful, it really highlights the extra that Bob Weir brings to the band and. You know, in that respect, it's kind of cool. example of um, something that you always complain about which is you don't know where you know to, to play uh, you know like it's, it's really hard to keep it to 30 seconds or 40 seconds you know in, in something that's so good I could have played that entire jam and that jam stays that hot the entire three minutes and 40 seconds they play it so anyone out there that hasn't heard the 822.93 odds and jack straw you know go back and listen to it. and as you said it's not a um, it's not a poke at Bob Weir it's more the fact that, you know, Garcia was able to hold it down. Because, I mean, I would say that the best Jack Straw is definitely have wear all the way through. But this is such a unique thing because the jam is so much longer. Normally a Jack Straw jam, you know, clocks in at like a minute and 30, minute and 40 if it's, you know, a big one. But to go for 340 uh, of, of just, you know, sort of the hottest part of the song, it's just such a rarity. And as I said, I don't think it was on purpose. It was more that Garcia's just waiting for Weir to come back. And it's like, all right, well, if he's not here, I'm, I'm just going to keep going. And, you know, thank God that he did. It's, it's... uh uh, look, you know, over the years, they've all had their, we were talking about the show uh, a few weeks ago when, when Jerry couldn't come out and Brent was playing the keyboards to fill in, you know, Jerry's uh, uh, guitar parts and stuff. And, and we, uh, you know, it's wonderful to see and, and it's, you know, not unlike, well, a little bit unlike, you know, but it, it, it gives it the same kind of sound that you have with Fish with one lead guitar player, a bass player, a drummer, a keyboard, right? And, and it, Fish is so tray forward with all of his guitar solos and everything. And listening to Jerry there, it you know, you get that unique kind of solo guitar sound. Um, and again, not to smash weird, but it's just fun to have the op- opportunity to hear it once or twice like that. Yeah, for sure. And uh, speaking of that, I don't know if you realize, but Trey actually might have another guitar player on stage with him pretty soon. If you uh, saw the announcement of the collaboration between the Trey Band and Goose, that's going to happen for I think eight shows this fall. If, uh, did you see the commercial that they put out about it? The uh, the peanut butter and uh, and chocolate commercial. I have not seen the commercial. So it's it's fantastic. Trey's holding chocolate, and uh, Goose's lead guy is holding a thing of peanut butter, and they did the old Reese's commercial from the nineteen seventies. They bump into each other, and it's like, hey, you got your chocolate, my peanut butter. No, you got your peanut butter, my chocolate. And then like, ah, oh, that's great. And it's like Trey and Goose together. Well, um, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, but Reese has actually put out a tweet today about it, which is really, really funny. And it said, we won't say whether we love chocolate, Trey Anastasio, or peanut butter, uh, Goose the band more. But speaking from experience, we 100% endorse this collaboration. Our question is, we make us split open and melt? If so, we might need to step into the freezer. <laughs> which is uh, which is great that, that Reese is... Reese is obviously as someone in their marketing right, department just or, say. In their, or in their uh, social media department who's a fish fan, but it's just fantastic that Reese's came out and put that out immediately after these guys dropped a, a blatant rip off of an old Reese's ad. Absolutely. No, I like that. Well, clearly uh, there is something about Goose that has smitten Trey, and he's, he's very taken by them. You know, Everybody's talking about the, the video clips of him going out and, and playing a few tunes with them and, uh, um, you know, what, whatever his reasoning is, he loves them, and uh, that's great. You know what? More power to him, more power to Goose. I'm going to see Goose a couple of weeks at Sacred Rose. I've never seen Goose before. I'm very excited. I, it's going it's to be a big night for me. I've never seen Umphreys McGee. I've never seen Disco Biscuits. I've never seen a lot of bands I'm going to finally get to see. How have you? Yeah. Really? Wow, you've never seen Umphs and you live in Chicago? Yep. How, how is that possible? I just never did. 
Wow, I mean, Umps to me is like, you know, when, when, if you said, like, name a Chicago band, like, who do you think of as, like, you know, Chicago? I would, you know, name, like, all the old blues guys, I'd name the Blues Brothers, but, I mean, if you say, like, contemporary, like, name Chicago, it's Umphrey's 100% for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got buddies who have seen them 100 times, it's just I've never, never wound up going to one of their shows, and actually, even at, at the Sacred Rose, it's going to be complicated because they have a, Umphrey's plays their first set, and then Goose's two-hour set starts, so... You know, everybody's like, oh, yeah, we'll go catch the first set of Umphreys, then we'll go catch Goose and just listen to them all the way through because you can't miss Goose. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it like that. Are they on the same stage? No. No. So Umphreys will be doing their first set over here, and then by the time the first set is over, Goose will start their two hours. They're just doing one two-hour set over there, and in the middle of their two-hour set, Umphreys is playing their second set. Gotcha. Well, I, I'm not sure who I'd rather go see. I've, I've seen... I've never seen Goose, but I've seen Humphreys, you know, probably 40 plus times now. And, uh, yeah, I've seen some just ridiculously good shows those guys put on. I think, you know, it, when you think of like the one-two guitar punch, you know, the classic, you know, one-two guitarists of like, you know, Dwayne Allman with, uh, with, with Dickie Betts, or, you know, you think about, um, uh, um, Jerry and Bobby. <laughs> I wouldn't put Bobby as like, you know, someone, someone that's, you know, that good as a lead, you know, it's, it's rare you get two lead uh, guitar players in the same band. Two but, lead uh, guitar players, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I think Mo has it, you know, with with Al Shire and um, and uh, and Chuck Garvey. You know, those guys like both of them like were just blistering hot you know, guitar players. But Jake Singer and uh, Brendan Bayless, who have two totally different styles, but are just you know incredibly talented. Umphreys, I think, has a one-two punch for guitar players. It's as good as it gets. Where those guys can just trade back and forth, back and forth, back and forth the whole time with totally different styles. And like they're and they're much more. I mean, I think they consider themselves to be more prog rock than jam bandy. And, uh, you know, their, their style, like, I'm, I'm not a huge, huge fan of, uh, of all their songs as far as, you know, like they're singing, but, you know, purely from a musical standpoint, I don't think there's too many guys in the business right now that are better than Humphreys. Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing them. It's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a fun weekend for me to, you know, to catch up on a lot of bands and still see, uh, some of the standards, Phil Lesh on Friday night with the Wilco boys and Carl Denson ought to be just amazing. And, uh. Sunday night, uh, uh, J Rad is is closing out that night, and they're they're bumping up against a lot of good players too. But I, uh, you know, I mean, I I some guy. Well, I've seen J Rad. I'm going to go check out other bands. No, no, no. If J Rad is playing and I'm there, I'm going to J Rad, <laughs> definitely. And uh, so it'll be fun, you know. I am I am terribly jealous. You're you're killing the music this summer, Larry. You're like you're absolutely crushing the music this summer. Like I've I haven't had a summer like you've described like you know for for this year in years. So, you know, way to get after it, man. It, this has been a great, it's been a great summer. I owe a lot to a lot of good buddies. My good buddy Alex is always making us, to, is always taking us to great shows. Uh, my buddy Kevin got me up to the fish shows. You know, always good people out there supporting me. And now, a lot of this whole crew is coming into Chicago. So, it'll be great, a chance to hang out with everybody, go through live music, and not have to worry about my playing being delayed. So, very excited about that. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great weekend, and uh, we'll be talking all about that in the aftermath as well and having some rundown on what went down at Sacred Rose. I, I'm a firm believer at this point that, uh, that Alex Wellens is the Bob Sacramento of the, uh, the Deadhead Cannabis show. <laughs> He's the person you always hear about, but you never actually get to see. You're, you're, like, you're like Wilson in, uh, in, in Tool Time. You, know, you think he exists, but you're not sure. Okay, well, we're, we're bringing him on one of these days, maybe after Sacred Rose, and he can give his official, uh, his official report on that. But hey, uh, The only reason I believe you at all is I've met his wife. Okay, well, there's, you know, look, Andy's right there, and she knows all this. They, in fact, they just saw Phil Lesh just did a show out by them in the Bay Area somewhere, a, a free show that they were able to even walk to, and uh, they were telling me all about it and, you know, giving great raves on that. And, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're very, very musically inclined. They're as tied into the musical scene as anyone I know, and I'm just lucky to get to go along for the ride, so it always works out well for me. Well, i got to tell you, Larry, it's nice to be back. Uh, it's nice to be uh, do, doing the show again. I'm super excited for the next couple of weeks now that I'm back in a, uh, a stable environment with a real Internet connection and air conditioning in the house and not traveling, and so it's uh, I'm back to my regular routine of very much looking forward to, uh, to taping the Deadhead Canvas show with you. So, you know, thanks for uh, holding it down this summer and especially doing it in between what sounds to be like thousands of different shows you've been hitting. So, you know, mighty impressed you've been able to, uh, to keep up the, the furious pace of seeing music and talking about music. So, uh, good on you, man. Okay. Got to be able to do it, right? The, the music's there if we don't take advantage of it. And after the last two summers of just not really feeling like, 
you know, it was it was okay this summer, even though I know there's still stuff going around. It was just that you got to get out and start seeing live music. And I will add that it helped that this was the year that we all turned 60, my whole group of friends. You know, for us, it was, for those of you who grew up in that type of environment, it was like bar mitzvah year, right? Either as a parent or a child, when every weekend there's another bar mitzvah that you have to go to, your kid has to go to. And, you know, by the end of the year, you're just exhausted. And this is, we've all turned 60. And as we've all turned 60, we've we've had destination get-togethers. And they've all involved music on one level or another. Uh, and that's just been, a, you know, a, a great addition to all of it, too. And, uh, you know, we, we decided, well, you turn 60, it's a great milestone to celebrate. And we're finally at the age where we can actually do it. And we still don't have kids in the house that we have to worry about and, you know, get coverage for. And they're all old enough to, to manage for themselves for, you know, a few weekends during the year while the parents all run out and, you know, get together and do what we like to do. No doubt. Well, just because uh, just because I'm not out there seeing as much as you are, I, I can tell you that um, my level will not fade away. So it's uh, I'm listening to as much as I can here at the house and uh, just not not seeing it live, but uh, getting as much as I can and just taking in whatever's being um, put out for me to consume. Uh, just doing it at home instead of in an audience. But uh, yeah. Very, very stoked. So Well, and that's a great little bit of foreshadowing for us there. Yeah, and so until next week, uh, we'll see you, see you then and enjoy you know, the last little clip we have from uh, Autzen Stadium, uh, August 22nd, 1993. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll see you next week. Be safe, have fun, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.